Thank you for traveling with Amex Platinum. To your right, you'll see Oceanside Relaxation at a fine hotel and resort property. When booked through Amex Travel, you can enjoy complimentary breakfast for 2 and 4 p.m. late checkout. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow the global story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. Getting ready to take on spring? Make your first move with the reliable performance and power of steel battery tools. From hedge trimmers and mowers to string trimmers and more, right now you can save $50 on select battery tool sets. Real steel. Offer valid on select AK system sets through June 16, 2024. See participating retailer for details. When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste, or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products, because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger, fresh for everyone. What's up, Open Floor Globe? This is Ben Golver with The Washington Post. I am joined on the other line by Michael the Pod, Pina, with Sports Illustrated, Michael, earlier this week, we did get the verdict in the Derek Chauvin trial, uh, basically a year-long story that has impacted the NBA following the death of uh, George Floyd during that, uh, you know, essentially detainment by police. Uh, he was found guilty, Chauvin was, on all three charges, um, including second-degree murder. I'm just curious, we saw an outpouring of response really from uh, around the globe, but particularly in this NBA community as well, with a number of players being directly involved in advocacy efforts and protests along the way last summer. Uh, Michael, I know you and I tracked this very carefully um, You know, throughout the, the pre-bubble and bubble period. What was your response to the verdict and the aftermath of the verdict earlier this week in Minneapolis? Yeah, I mean, for me, it was it was a complicated, complex mix of feelings. I mean, I I felt sadness for George Floyd's family for having to obviously go through all of this, including the trial and watching the video over and over again. Um, I felt relief for the fact that, you know, I'm not sure how a broken system could even locate the right track and never come close to being redeemed, let alone perceived as fair if the verdict were not guilty. Um, I felt relief for the avoidance of unrest and violence that surely would have followed in Minneapolis and in other communities all over the country and, and even the world if the verdict were not guilty. Um, so like in the grand scheme, this ruling was a, a baby step towards what's right. So I wasn't I wasn't happy holding that perspective, knowing so much more needs to be done. But there was there was solace for sure. And I'm obviously... I'm glad that the verdict was what it was. 
That's very well said, Michael. I noticed that same sentiment in a lot of the statements, you know, either from the league and the MBPA as well as a number of teams as well. This really wasn't a celebration. I think a lot of people were sort of debating whether or not it actually qualifies, quote unquote, as justice in the big picture when your family is losing a, a father, uh, you know, and a boyfriend and, and those kinds of things. Um, what did you take away from some of the responses uh, from the NBA teams within the NBA community? Were there certain statements that stuck out? I guess to me, the sentiment that really popped forward over and over again was the idea that like this is sort of the beginning, not the ending, and that we need to use this as a, you know maybe an example when we're going forward and and you know reassessing relationships between police and society or police in Black America. Was that your takeaway, or was there something else? Yeah, I mean, you know. I think language is very important. Um, sometimes I think we lose sight of what actually matters debating language. But like in this incident where one man killed another and was videotaped and found guilty and will be sent to jail for we don't we don't really know how long, but at least a decade, I think, um, looking at the sentencing guidelines like that to me, by definition, just like qualifies as, as justice, like in the criminal justice system. But um like, and I'm going to say this over and over, like more needs to be done. So I agree with the sentiment that was passed on by several teams, several players, um, you know, like right now passing the George Floyd Justice in Policing Act through the Senate is necessary. Like we need to eliminate qualified immunity for people who still think that there are only bad apples. OK, well, then how about we punish them as criminals when they commit crimes instead of seeing them go on administrative leave or, or join um, another jurisdiction or precinct like we, we look at what happened with Jacob Blake that officer who shot him seven times in the back is now working again um, so I like I know this is something being debated right now in the Senate and there's talk of compromise etc and we don't need to go off on a tangent there but I just think if you're talking about justice justice is making sure that nothing like this happens ever again and that is a very high bar as you know, and as everyone who lives in this country knows, but if you don't try to make change happen, then the difficult will turn into the impossible um, is basically how I view it. When you look back on the last year, whether it was the protest, the initial groundswell of uh, reaction in Minneapolis, uh, how much attention do you think we should pay to NBA players? I think most notably Steven Jackson, who was um, you know, really forthright at the beginning of this entire process. You know, I think it's easy to, of course, give credit to the prosecution and the justice system for arriving at this verdict, to the jurors for for rendering it, for the judge for overseeing it, and you know, the system itself. But it wasn't a direct line at all, was it? When we when we flash back to last year, had Stephen Jackson not come forward as a a leader of the masses, had they not gone to town hall and made those statements, had they not protested day after day after day, pressuring the system to, you know, charge Derek Chauvin in the first place, which it seemed like they weren't necessarily um, heading towards, you know, especially after that first statement, which came out explaining away George Floyd's death without, you know, mentioning almost any sort of an interaction uh, with the police officer at all. Do we need to be giving credit to these NBA players for helping deliver this particular justice? Do you look back at it that way? I mean, of course, there's a million twists and turns along the way, but would we have gotten to this week without the NBA's influence? I mean, some of the figures that you just mentioned, I think that they played a role 
in the sense that they brought attention to the crime, as you said, like when it initially happened. I, I mean, I also think, like, and maybe I'm getting the timeline a little screwy, but, like, the outrage was already escalating and spreading before Steven Jackson spoke out. Um, but I don't think that him speaking out hurt at all, for sure. I mean, he was a very, very visible um, Oh, yeah, for like, sure. Well, look, I mean, the outrage happened as soon as everybody saw the video, right? But yes. I think that he got to Minneapolis within a matter of, of days and before the charges came down. And so... You know, there, there's some coordinated action, and I also just think like elevated visibility that you know the, the players deserve a lot of credit for. Minnesota Timberwolves players were out front, Carl Anthony Towns, uh, Josh Okogie, and others. Uh, of course, NBA stars rallied around Steven Jackson because I think it was personalized for him as well. I think they played a massive role in the the opening week of response to the George Floyd, uh, you know, death. I mean, I, you know, I think that. It certainly could have led to charges without them. I, that's absolutely fair, but I think that they they shined a light on it big time. No, I mean you're you're right. Um, they could have not utilized their humongous platform um, in the middle of a pandemic and kind of kept to themselves. That that is an option, and a lot of them did not do that. And particularly the ones who are who were in that market. Um, that takes a lot of bravery. That takes a lot of guts. Um, that takes a lot of fortitude. So they should definitely be commended, particularly the active players as well. Um, and you're right. Like they have, they are the most famous uh, black men in the world, <laughs> to be honest. NBA players are in that group. So when they speak up, millions of people listen, Mil- millions of people watch what they have to say. Um, so that initial spark. Um, that they kind of were around for and that they contributed to for sure was a po- was a positive and an otherwise just absolutely terrible, terrible event. So real quickly, here's the official statement from the NBA and the MBPA joint statement. George Floyd's murder was a flashpoint for how we look at race and justice in our country, and we are pleased that justice appears to have been served, but we also recognize there is much more work to be done, and the NBA and MBPA, together with our newly formed Social Justice Coalition, will redouble our efforts to advocate for meaningful change in the areas of criminal justice and policing. I mean, a pretty simple statement, but I do think that's the right message. I do want to zoom back to the bubble just for a minute because, you know, we had a a ruling in the Breonna Taylor case. You'll remember that, where the officers really weren't charged in any way towards her death at her home in Louisville. And I will never forget the players' reaction to that. I believe there was four teams left in the bubble at that point, the final four, and guys were having a hard time making eye contact. They were completely overwhelmed emotionally. They were resigned to the idea that the system you know, was broken and there was nothing that they could do. And it, it, it struck me at the time that it was a real different sensation than uh, even after the Jacob Blake video came out where there was just anger and this desire to be out front of cameras and trying to advocate as strong as possible. With Breonna Taylor, it was sadness, not anger. It was re- resignation rather than sort of this energizing moment for activism, right? And I think... The third chapter here is this response to the George Floyd thing. And I was glad to see, um, you know, some of these players feeling like, look, you know, quote unquote, we got one like this. This this one went in our favor. Finally, the system didn't let us down as badly as they believed it did in the Breonna Taylor situation. And um, I thought that was, you know, something of a bookend when you look back on this uh, last year of activism. I would say those were sort of the three biggest moments, right? Jacob Blake, Breonna Taylor 
and George Floyd and the NBA community reacted to me in different ways to all three. Yeah, no, I, I would 100% agree with everything you're saying. And you use the word resignation, like I'll use the word like exhaustion. I think that players are just, were yeah. just exhausted. Despair, despair, right? Yes. I mean, yeah. 100%. And I mean, you know, I'm doing a story that I don't want to talk about too much right now, but I'm reporting it about um, the past year. And you talk to people recently, um, players and people around the NBA, um, after the Dante Wright shooting um, in a Minneapolis suburb. And it's just like the ultimate gut punch um, for people who have been so dedicated uh, to affecting change and, you know, trying to change policy, trying to uh, create a bridge between the affected communities and um, police departments as best as possible. And when something like this happens, it just it feels like you're going back to ground zero. And it's very, very difficult to climb back up the mountain. And it is all so heartbreaking and so tragic to even think about um, when you really sit down and, 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 and process it all. Um, but but yeah, like I'm 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 hopeful and uh, I guess excited isn't the right word, but I think it's really good that NBA players and NBA teams and the league as a whole are not just thinking that this verdict in the George Floyd case is kind of like the end of racism. (laughs) So um, it it was really good to kind of hear and see some of the reaction to it, understanding that this fight is far, 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 far from over. Yeah, one point on this trial I'd like to make just quickly, you know, this issue of trust, uh, you know, between the black community and the police departments or cities and their police departments more broadly um, is something that I remember vividly from when I went to college in Baltimore and there was just a real lack of trust there. And, you know, the idea that, you know, a lot of times the police would say, well, you know, we can't even get people to come be witnesses or, you know, they, they won't come to the courtroom and Uh, stand up and point the finger at people who are doing crimes in their community because they don't trust us. How are we ever supposed to investigate anything if the community is shutting us out? And I think a a real step towards repairing those kinds of bonds came in this trial when police officers decided to testify against their own uh, officer, Derek Chauvin. I mean, having his chief, having his training officer go on the stand and say, hey, this is we don't approve of this. This isn't what we taught him how to do. Uh, You know, essentially, Um, you know, in a way, throwing him under the bus, but also saying, look, like, we don't abide by this. This is not who we want to be within our communities. That's a key first step. And that needs to kind of keep happening. I understand that that's a pretty rare thing to happen in courtrooms. But as we go forward, and unfortunately, there's bound to be more of these kinds of, uh, you know, acts of violence between uh, police officers and citizens, I would hope that 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 starts to be a trend. I hope there would be other police leaders who would be able to say, if I can review the videotape, if I can understand whether this was right or wrong, I'd be willing to go in public and and express those feelings because I think that's absolutely a crucial element. If you're going to have faith in a judicial system, you want to know that there are good people who are willing to speak up and that it's not just a closed community where you're never going to get answers. Um, maybe that got too heavy and too deep, Michael, so my apologies. But uh, I did think that was that was a major takeaway from this trial. And again, it goes back to your point and the NBA's point. That doesn't mean this is going to be how it is forever. There's no guarantee that every, you know, every police shooting going forward, we're going to have uh, you know, other officers coming forward and, and speaking their mind. So I would just hope that serves as an example, I guess, is what I would say. 
Right. And I just want to real quickly add something to that, you know, um, the uniqueness of having other officers testify. But at the same time, the fact that so many I don't know how you felt when you heard that the verdict was in. Like, I personally felt um, very anxious um, until it was announced. And this is despite video evidence, a wave of I don't know how closely you follow the trial. I followed it pretty closely. A wave of damaging testimony called for by the prosecution from medical examiners to cardiologists to pulmonologists to those fellow police officers, including the chief of the Minneapolis police. Like that is just so sobering that you can have all of this and still feel like it's going to go against you. So that's just like it speaks to how far um, we need to go. I mean, I I, I Real quick, I talked to my dad about it on the phone right afterwards, and he couldn't believe his reaction was he couldn't believe all three charges were guilty. He was still stunned by that. So um, that just kind of speaks to where we are and, and where we need to be. I heard that um, same sensation from a lot of people. And, you know, I talked to a whole bunch of people who were following this trial, and I'll be honest, I noticed a, um, a demographic breakdown in skepticism, you know. I, I found myself thinking this guy's going down for sure. As soon as his boss testified against him, it was a wrap in my mind. I thought he was done. And I expressed that opinion to a lot of people who all had the exact same take that you did, which is, I've seen this happen before. This is somehow going to get screwed up. There's going to be some weird technicality. Um, you know, it's going to be one juror, you know, hung jury. Maybe they get him on the lower charge. I mean, I, I got that back from a lot of people, both in the NBA community and outside. So, um, that made me feel naive and kind of, you know, I felt like I was being gaslit. I was like, wait a minute, we're all watching the same trial, right? Like, this is not going well for him whatsoever. Um, but, uh, you know, I think at the end, it, it played out like I expected. And the crazy part to me, though, is if you only had the witnesses, right, uh, the bystanders and the videos without the police testimony, would that have made a difference? That's the unanswerable question. And I think that's one of the most fascinating layers to this uh, to this case, because we won't know. And I think that my skepticism, I would have been much more in the camp that you're describing, you and your father, had the cops not testified against him. I felt like that was it. I felt that that was the moment where, like, it gave the jurors an excuse to say, hey, even though generally speaking, you know, I I might be pro-police or I'm a a law and order person, but this wasn't law, this wasn't order. And, you know, now I can convict with a clean mind. Um, and, And that just doesn't happen in some cases. At least that's how I came away from it. Um, And, you know, these are all anecdotal situations that I'm describing with my conversations. But I noticed a lot of skepticism. And that's why I think it comes back to your first point, which was relief for a lot of people, because there was that dread of, oh, no, you know, are we going to get this wrong as a country? Right. Um, You know, speaking of getting it wrong, smooth transition. You know, we talked about some of the MBA's responses, uh, you know, around that community. I did see about a 24-hour news cycle focused on this tweet from the Oakland Raiders where they put out a little black and white graphic that said, I can breathe. Um, apparently, it was trying to kind of flip this notion of I can't breathe and you know, making it uh, a reference to the relief that people were feeling. I don't think it was very well received, Michael. What did you think when you saw that Oakland Raiders tweet? Uh, well, I'll start by just saying that George Floyd's brother... Um, released a statement about this tweet. I don't know if you saw it, but he felt gratitude towards the Raiders organization. And um, basically, the the Raiders said that the I can breathe was them paraphrasing something that George Floyd's brother said um, after the verdict was read. So I just want to put that in for context. 
Um, but if you're asking me personally, uh, I-, I found it to be in poor taste as a suggestion that that jury's decision corrected a wrong. Um, regardless of its intention, the tweet had a, a quote, racism has been solved, unquote, vibes. And I really hope that that's not what some people think. Um, and that the issue at hand will not go away in anyone who's alive right now's lifetime, when you really think about it. And there are officers in Derek Chauvin's department who believe he got a bad deal, that he was unfairly scapegoated. So I can breathe is just one tweet, but also, again, words matter, messaging matters. Um, This verdict isn't to make white people feel better. It's to remind them that there's still so much work to do. Policy needs to change, training that needs to be dramatically overhauled, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So that was basically just kind of my my read on that tweet. My read on that tweet was they got it wrong from the very first word. When you said (laughs) I, it was already wrong. This one's not about you, bro. There's some old song. This song is, you think this song is about you. This song was not about you, Oakland Raiders. This song was about George Floyd and his families, and the thoughts should have been to them first. Nobody else. You don't have to try to make it about yourself. You don't have to make it about a national relief. If you're issuing a statement, keep them in your thoughts and prayers first, and you know, and don't do something where you're going to kind of make a, a very volatile situation worse. And... Um, I can't believe there wasn't a, a bigger apology, you know, from their ownership group. He kind of came out and had some statements, you know, left the tweet up and all of that. I mean, to me, it was just poor oh, form all down. around. Yeah, he, d- he doubled down. But uh, also, um, I was not expecting a Carly Simon reference out of this discussion, but I appreciate you for, for bringing that to the table because that's a great song. Multitudes and layers over here, Michael. You never know what you're going to get out of me. Look, there's no easy way to shift gears here, but I, I really appreciate that discussion. I did feel like um, it was the final chapter to a really, really long year following that case, and that you know intersected with the NBA all along the way. So I'm glad uh, we were able to do that. Um, in NBA news, we had a lot of it. I mean, it was a crazy night of basketball yet again. I'm kind of sensing a real skip in the step around the league. I think people are realizing, look, there's less than a month until the end of the regular season. There's seeding battles all over the place in the standings. It's time to make your push, and we're seeing teams do that. The Washington Wizards are making a little bit of a push. They got a win over uh, Steph Curry. The New York Knicks are making a big push. Um, They actually you know, defeated in overtime the Atlanta Hawks, and I thought the biggest story from that game, other than the Knicks fans dancing around Manhattan, I'm sure dancing on your grave, Michael, for trying to tell everyone how easy they were going to be to beat in the playoffs on the last episode, uh, I tease, I tease. The big story was Trey Young's ankle injury. That did not look good. I mean, he was in some serious pain, and it's so tight there in the Eastern Conference standings. I mean, they dropped from four to five with that loss. Do you think they could actually fall into the play-in round, depending on how much time he misses? I mean, if he's out for a very long time, then potentially. Um, I th- yeah, they're only a game up on Miami in the seven the seven seed right now. Um, but like, I don't know. I look at the Atlanta Hawks, and they've got a lot of depth. They've got a lot of firepower. Lou Williams has played okay for them. Goodwin is like a really effective third guard. Uh, I know I'm not making like the strongest case for (laughs) the Atlanta Hawks kind of holding everything together, but they play really good defense. I think their defense will be better without Trey Young for obvious reasons. And 
the Hawks have won their last three games when Trey does not play um, against okay teams. So I don't think it's a total panic yet, but I, I also, you know, I want to see how long he's actually out for. It didn't seem like it was going to be a short-term one to me. I mean, it was really reminiscent of young Steph Curry, wasn't it? Um, I mean, it, it looked painful. He looked like he was really... Uh, you know, distraught almost when he was on the court. They've played okay without him in little spots here and there. So, you know, mm-hmm. it might not be the end of the world, but it is so tight. And they've got some tough teams behind them. You know, Boston's been making a push, as we've described recently. Miami's still trying to get its stuff together. So it wouldn't surprise me at all if they did drop to seven, just because it's only a matter of a game or two. If that happened, Michael, it could potentially set up the Brooklyn Nets versus the Hawks in the first round. And on the last episode, you were discussing, well, maybe you would prefer Brooklyn versus the Washington Wizards because of the Russell Westbrook versus Kevin Durant factor and, you know, throw James Harden in the mix and so we can get a whole bunch of graphics on the television broadcast from those, uh, you know, the early, uh, you know, Thunder teams. Um, would you prefer, though, Atlanta versus Brooklyn? Because every game they've played this year, I swear it's been like 142 to 137. It would be an all-timer from a scoring standpoint. Would you prefer that potentially as a first-round matchup, maybe to kind of salvage some of the frustration for the Hawks if they do drop? Because, look, I know you've said you're infatuated with them. Um, would that be uh, would that be a good enough payoff for one of the Hawks' biggest fans, Michael Pina? Uh, I mean, I still really want to see Russ go against <laughs> KD. That would be great. Um, but this matchup is really – it would be intriguing for sure, um, especially just like – they're contrasting styles. Like the when the Nets are healthy, they play really fast. They want to get up and down. They want to attack you um, off makes, off misses. The Hawks under Nate McMillan, meanwhile, have been like one of the like they just play like a snail. They go real slow, um, off makes, off misses. Doesn't matter. Um, and so I, I think that that could be really interesting and. You know, obviously the Nets are still, when healthy, super effective in the half court. They have, you know, I don't need to outline their weapons, but they have them. Um, But the Hawks have them too. And I I just wrote about John Collins the other day. I really love John Collins um, just as a complimentary piece in the way that he's adapted his game. Clint Capella has been just tremendous. And um, Dominique Wilkins had a comment on a recent during a recent Hawks game, not last night's game, I think it was two or three games ago, where uh, they were talking about Bogdan Bogdanovich, and uh, someone said something about Steph Curry, and then Dominique Wilkins compared the two as both having incredible runs. <laughs> I was like, yeah, um, I, I just couldn't go there with uh, with Dominique Wilkins, but it made me laugh out loud and chuckle. But, but like the point is that Bogdanovich has been really good. Um, yeah, as no, that's well. like the the broadcaster version of like search engine optimization, where it's like, all right, you know, we've got our story here about Bogdan's hot streak. Let's just like throw Steph Curry's name into the title so we can get some more clicks. Great work uh, from the human highlight film himself. You know, speaking of teams that are maybe streaking in the wrong direction, have you been uh, checking out the Portland Trailblazers lately? They had a couple of heartbreaking losses here, going down to the final seconds. And it could potentially, you know, sink them a little bit in this playoff chase. Now, Dallas is like hot on their heels right now, um, only a half game behind. After the Mavericks did all that whining and caught all that grief for whining, it's possible they're going to pass Portland to grab the sixth seed. If Portland falls into the play-in round, 
you know, their defense is pretty rough, Michael. The, they haven't had a good record against good teams all season long. Are we totally sure if Portland falls into the play-in that they're going to make the real playoffs? Or is this a team, because I think I've labeled them here over the last week or two as the team in the playoffs that all the favorites would want to play, right? I think if you're Utah, Phoenix, and the Clippers as the top three season, it seems like, you know, Denver and, and the Lakers are pretty much locked in now at 4-5. or five. You would rather play Portland, given their, the state of their defense, than Dallas to me, or even Golden State if they were to come out of the play-in round, right? So, you know, maybe that takes the pressure off Portland in a way and makes their lives a little bit easier and there's no expectations. And so it's kind of all gravy. At the same time, like if that's the, who you are, if you're being cast as, uh, you know, the the, the weakest link uh, in this bracket, potentially, um, what does that say if they fall into the playing round? Are they vulnerable here? Could they get knocked out or upset potentially if they have to go against Golden State or whoever else it might be in that uh, in that tournament? I don't know. I think I have a little bit more confidence um, in Portland, despite how they've played of late. And, you know, I think how they've played of late is kind of reflective of um, like a bounce back towards normality after just the ridiculous. I mean, their their crunch time numbers all season are insane. Like they should not be they should not have the record that they have anyway <laughs> because of how bad their defense is. I mean, they have a negative net rating right now and have had a negative net rating for most of the season so like their win-loss record is just like a total lie because dame is just like the best crunch time scorer who's ever lived and so when you lose these close games um it's not that surprising because like that's just kind of like they're coin flips essentially so it's not that surprising to me that um all of a sudden they've they've started to drop some of these close ones but, you know, on that point, you're right. I mean, you know, they are, their luck was bound to catch up with them because they were winning all the close games earlier in the season. And Dame was making incredible luck with his great late games plays, right? But it's a matter of inches on some of these. You know, Norman Powell's potential game winner goes in. We're probably having a different conversation last night. It only rimmed off by a couple inches. Um, but their record has far exceeded their point differential all season long. Usually the stat guys would say, your point differential is more reflective of who you are as a team. So if they're coming back to earth and playing more like their point differential, now you're looking at a couple of these other teams and saying, hey, maybe those teams, even if they have worse records than Portland right now, could be better than them. No, I mean, it's a really fair point. Um, I still, you know, some of me looks at uh, just their entire body of work this season and all of the injuries that they've had. And assuming that they are healthy um, in the play-in tournament, I think that they'll still be pretty formidable. And, you know, their defense has been atrocious, but their defense is atrocious because Ennis Cantor started at center for so many games and their backup center was like Carmelo Anthony. So, of course, their defense was terrible. But if you have Nurkic and he's healthy, I think that that gives you a little bit of a boost there. Um I'd, I would rather play – I would still rather play the Warriors um, than the Blazers if I had to win a game or two. I, like, I just – I don't want to go – nothing against Steph at all, but I just – I like the the different options that Portland has offensively. And if I get – if I'm in a close game with them down the end uh, near in the fourth quarter, like, Dame is just – he's – he's the scariest person alive. So, uh, so I'm still a little nervous about Portland in terms of like having to face them. I wouldn't be like super pumped about it. 
No, I hear you for sure. Just in point of clarification on the point differential stuff. So right now, Dallas and Memphis both have better point differentials than Portland, but it's pretty close. So if Portland does slide a little bit. I mean, that's they're right in that right range, like the eight or nine seed by point differential. Portland's slightly better than Golden State. That could change if Curry continues to, you know, keep having this crazy push late, and especially with with Wiseman not there to drag everything down. Um, Golden State could pass Portland as well. Portland should be above the Spurs though in point differential, so that makes them basically the nine in the West if you're going strictly off that. At the same time, you know, if you're picking Memphis versus Portland, we saw what happened head to head last year in that play-in. And you're probably going to take Portland, so. They're probably going to sneak in, I would guess, with that last playoff seed. But I do think that Dallas is going to stay in front of them. And uh, all that whining, you know, was going to pay off. As long as Lucas stays healthy down the stretch, I think they're going to get what they want. Unfortunately for them, that could mean a first-round date with the Clippers. And, um, you know, I would still favor the Clippers in that series against the Mavericks. Um, All right, Michael. On the other side of that game, just a quick note. Uh, I'm not sure if you happen to catch Portland-Denver. A really entertaining endgame. I just want to give Jokic a shout out. I think people really view him as a, a one-way offensive player, and, and they just said, "Oh, he's okay on defense." You know, he kind of gets by. He was the smartest player on the court to close that game out. He made a number of really impressive, and I was kind of like, you know, some of those situations where you're closing your eyes and you're worried he's not going to be able to do it. Uh, but you know, he's like dancing back in transition with these scramble scenarios, doing a nice job of contesting shots without fouling and, and clearing defensive rebounds as well. He had a bunch of clutch plays there to bring that win home. And then offensively, of course, he was doing it all, getting himself going to the basket, getting the free throws, um, and kind of icing that game away. So, you know, to me, you know, I think that He's never going to be an elite defensive player, but I don't feel like he's their weakest defensive league. Even in a playoff matchup against the Lakers where they're going to be able to pull him out um, with Anthony Davis coming back and and, and posing those matchup problems, uh, that's a challenge for him. But I don't think that he's like, you know, the, the, the reputation, I guess, that he had earlier in his career, I think is a little unfounded. The guy can make some really smart plays and he's big on the glass and, and he can handle that uh, those duties as well. What do you think? I mean, I, I agree with you. I think he's super... I've thought about writing about this, but just haven't gotten around to it. I think he's super underrated defensively, especially when he drops in pick and rolls. And he has this like wonderful... Just like he has instincts. And the instincts go with super fast hands that you wouldn't think can move that quickly just because he doesn't move that quickly. But... Like, you don't want to test him. You don't want to get too close to him because he will, he'll strip you. I mean, he's up there in steals. He's up there in deflections. He's super smart, as you said. And I think he's just getting better and better defensively now. When he's off the floor, you know, the on offs are just not great. And they kind of they crush um, a lot of the support that someone would have for his defense. But I just think, like, generally, like, I, I, I don't see him as, like, a huge minus on the defensive end, as some are, are, are positing this season. Neither do I. The tricky part is this matchup with the Lakers is like his worst case scenario. I think he gets by against every other team in the Western Conference playoffs as, you know, as a solid defensive piece. And Davis is the toughest matchup for him. On that point with Davis coming back, I mean, I think the the plan was for him to return Thursday night. We're taping this on Thursday morning. What do you expect from him after such a, t- a long time off? What do you think the uh, the next few weeks will look like for the Lakers? Are they and they don't really have a need to make a big push? They're pretty much locked into that four or five matchup, and I don't think home court is really going to be attainable probably because Denver's still playing so well. 
they can kind of just keep this thing on cruise control, right? And uh, and just make sure Davis is back up to speed. Isn't that pretty much their game plan? Yeah, I guess so. Um, you know, I, I, I obviously getting AD back will be wonderful, and getting him in game shape before the playoffs. So he has like a month, about a month to do so, will be really important. Um, you know, I, like. I'm not concerned about his Achilles, but some of the comments that he made this week about um, just like the pain that he felt when he suffered the initial injury are pretty scary. And even though he's been off for this amount of time, like I'm still just like weary for him based on all these other injuries that we're seeing around the league. And so I hope that they're very precautious and I know that they will be. Um, down the stretch here and it it is definitely a luxury that they did not fall out of you know not having to play in the plan which would have been a total disaster uh so that gives them a little bit of breathing room and yeah i'm also interested just to like watch him coexist with drummond and watch him um kind of be the prime a number one option offensively until lebron returns that's going to be really interesting to see because i mean i love watching ad play basketball so it's good it's good for everybody it's good for everybody there's no question it's an interesting phase here because no lebron and still we don't have a timeline on him so they're going to have to go through one adjustment with ad a second adjustment with lebron but i think they're they're kind of big winners here having survived the worst part of their schedule without both those uh, guys healthy, to still know almost exactly where you're going to be in the playoffs, know who your matchup is going to be, to have confidence because you played them in last year's um, playoffs and won in five games. I mean, I think that you know they, they couldn't have survived this Anthony Davis absence much better, especially when it was the dual absence with LeBron. Lakers fans, they're, they're sitting pretty much to your chagrin, I know, Michael. There's no distance too far for the perfect trip. <laughs> Hi, checking in for... Or the perfect table. Hey, where are you? Coming! And when you get access to Resi Priority Notify with your Amex Platinum card... Hey, this looks amazing! I'm so glad you made it. And travel benefits at fine hotels and resorts booked through Amex Travel. It's worth the trip. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. The wait is over. The shy is back on Paramount Plus, and the stakes have never been higher. Everything changes on the South Side when a new threat comes to power in the Showtime original series from Emmy winner Lena Waithe. Battle lines will be drawn, alliances will shift, and danger lies around every corner, leaving everyone to wonder who they can trust. Visit ParamountPlus.com/theshy to get a fifty percent discount off the Paramount Plus with Showtime annual plan. Offer ends July fourteenth. Subscription auto renews. Restrictions apply. 
Open a limited-time 11-month certificate at Kemba Financial Credit Union. At 5.25% APY, it's more than triple the national average, plus it's a safe and secure way to grow your money. Visit your local branch or kemba.org slash cb for details. Offer expires May 31st, 2024. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. $500 minimum and $250,000 maximum deposit. Advantage status required. Comparison based on bank rate average. Federally insured by NCUA. All right, let's uh, shift gears here. Let's take some questions from the Open Floor Globe. What do you say, Michael? They emailed us, openfloormail at gmail.com, openfloormail at gmail.com. Michael, you'll remember earlier this week we did the clone teams where we tried to come up with the best possible five-man combinations. I think my team was LeBron, two Kevin Durants, one Steph Curry, and an Anthony Davis. Um, Your team was insane and had a bunch of Kawhi Leonard's and Marcus Smart. Here's uh, what some of the the emailers had to say. Are you ready? I'm ready. While your clone teams were okay, apart from Marcus Smart, I believe mine would comfortably beat any team around, says Daniel. I'm going to cheat here a little bit with my team, but for the purposes of this exercise, I'm ruling in favor of myself and saying that's fine. His team is Chris Paul, two prime Clay Thompsons, and two Anthony Davises. AD is maybe the most switchable, versatile defender in the league while also giving up nothing on offense. The rebounding and spacing on offense is going to be unstoppable. Then imagine having one AD come to rush a high pick and roll and switch on to whoever he needs to. If you're able to penetrate, you then have to deal with another Anthony Davis while the original Anthony Davis is still covering the perimeter. You're not going to be able to score on two Anthony Davises. I'm sorry. And he went on to to discuss the importance of Clay as a big-time floor spacer and also amazing perimeter defender as well who can switch and, and all those good things. Michael, what do you think about this team? And what about the notion of two Anthony Davises? He might be right. I was making that same argument in, on behalf of KD, that two KDs would be you know a big-time problem. But what if it was LeBron, two KDs, and two ADs? Is that the best possible team if we're kind of combining my team with Daniel's team? Where's Marcus Smart in this conversation is all I want to know. Well, he's in the parentheses of this email with a giant LOL. I mean, he was laughing you off of the internet with the Marcus Smart suggestion. Michael, I'm sure that was painful. It was a little bit and incorrect. But um, yeah, having two Anthony Davises, that's a very good basketball team. I I do think he's cheating a little bit with the prime Clay Thompsons. I mean, I know that he acknowledges that he's cheating, but I have to call it out. Because it's not like I'm, you know, I I didn't ask for prime Marcus Smart two years ago, you know, athletically, but I get what I get with Marcus. Um, Yeah, it was a little presumptuous of him to try to say he could be the judge of his own rules. Come on, Daniel, we're the judges here. (laughs) But no, I mean, I like this team and this entire exercise. There's like nothing I'm going to really get upset about or criticize too harshly like that what you just described what was it lebron to kds and to anthony davis's i can't even like um, that might be the team that That really might be (laughs) the team michael it might be but here's a question from russ in russia he checks in with some lebron hate he says quick question which one of the lebrons is getting yelled at by the rest of the lebrons when a different LeBron inevitably falls asleep and screws up the off-ball defense. In other words, if you have a team of five LeBrons, which one of those has to be Mario Chalmers? Michael, he has a point. Is there going to be some finger-pointing potentially if LeBron uh, lapses into some defensive uh, you know, sleep mode every once in a while? 
so the answer to this, first of all, this is very, it's a very interesting um, proposition. I feel like if LeBron was cloned and there were five of him, all five LeBrons would not want to be shown up by any of the other LeBrons. They would all want to be the best LeBron. So they would be locked in. Like, they would be dialed in on every possession. There would be no taking any plays off. There would be no getting backdoor cut along the baseline. Um, There would be, you know, they would be, like, the, the selfless, brilliant virtuoso that LeBron is, and they wouldn't want to get shown up by any of the other um, very large men who look exactly like like they do. So, so that's um, so I don't I don't think that uh, there would be any LeBron who gets like I, that's why I think the five LeBron team is just like flawless because I don't think that LeBron, any of the LeBrons are gonna behave like as LeBron does in certain like there is no chill mode here. I think that it's just like 100% balls to the wall LeBron at all times. So what if the KD team, though, like they're not going to they're not gonna snap at each other, right? Because they're all pure hoopers. KD loves the pure hoopers. So if he's surrounded by five clones of himself, isn't he in heaven? Isn't this nirvana? Everybody's living up to his standard. There's no finger pointing whatsoever. Or is he going to turn on himself and snap like he did on Draymond if he doesn't get the ball? Is there going to be problems late in games when one KD won't pass to the other KD when they're coming up the court for the final shot. Is that potentially a bigger personality problem than the LeBron ones that Russ and Russia is pointing out? Or do you think uh, you agree with me that KD would just sort of be in his little heaven of hoopers and, and be able to make it work? So this is this gets us into some, uh, some murky territory where it's kind of like, does KD like do, I know LeBron loves himself uh, as he should as all of us should. I don't know, you know how you know KD. I don't know what his self confidence level is. Sometimes you know mm. his his self assuredness. Um, and I'm just gonna leave it at that. But uh, this isn't to, to to rag on KD. I think if we had the peak version of um, you know KD just balling out and enjoying himself and and as you said being along with four other hoopers of his caliber that that would be a very formidable basketball team but well, like my, I do Michael, wonder if they were if they would argue a little bit I'd say it this way I wouldn't want 5 KDs in the group text that could be problematic um you know <laughs> but I think 5 KDs on the court would work just fine I mean he's a very confident player on the court he always wants the ball in the big moments uh he knows how to play the right way he believes in the ideas of hard work he's going to hold his uh, his fellow clones to the highest possible standard I think it would work out okay. Just don't get them in a you know a Twitter group reply. I think that would be a problem or any sort of a group text, fantasy football league, email chain, any of that stuff, I think you'd be in trouble. Um, all right, here's one from Ryan. He says, I was trying to think from a stats-based approach, how could we maximize points per possession? You could try to go with just the highest true shooting percentage, but that's still only about 70% tops. Can you get it higher? I say yes. He says, enter the league-leading offensive rebounder. Clint Capella has a 17.5% offensive rebound rate this year. So if you had five Capellas, you could get an astounding 87.5% of (laughs) offensive rebounds. Plus, he has 60% true shooting, so any offensive board will either go in or be offensive rebounded again. They used to call that the Moses Malone, Michael. You know, he'd pad those offensive rebounding stats by missing a few layups over and over again. Um, in Ryan's esteemed calculation, that was going to guarantee just about two points per possession with the five Capellas formula. 
Then he says, unfortunately, Capella has a 9% turnover rate. So that's nearly half of possessions as turnovers if you had five Capellas. If you entered a great lob thrower, dribbler, passer, and league leader in true shooting, Joe Ingles, you would be able to overcome this problem. So if you had four Capellas, you're you're getting an offensive rebound rate of 70, but you get a bump in true shooting and playmaking from Joe Ingles. Do you think it's possible, Michael, that Joe Ingles just shooting three-pointers over and over and over again while Capella chases them would have the potential to be the greatest offensive efficiency machine in NBA history? Or is this one where Ryan, our buddy, the stat dork, needs to come back up for air? This would be, without a doubt, the worst transition defense (laughs) ever seen on a basketball court. Like, you could not get worse than this. I, I really appreciate the thought exercise. It made me think a little bit. And the thought of having four Clint Capellas bum-rushing the, the paint and trying to grab the same missed shot, I just feel like that would be um, would be absolutely hilarious. And, and Joe Ingles being the fifth guy instead of someone like uh, Steph Curry also made me chuckle because Joe Ingles has a very high true shooting percentage, yes, but you know a lot of those come off of actions created by Jordan Clarkson and Donovan Mitchell and just that offense and how great it is. So I I thought that that was a a very funny um, collection of clones. And uh, I, I would, I would actually really enjoy watching them play because there would be a lot of dunks on the other end. Yeah, I think it's a situation with offensive rebounding where there's such a thing as market oversaturation, you know, like, I don't think you're actually getting uh, that same uh, offensive rebounding percentage from all of the clones, but it was a great and, and really funny email. Thaddeus writes in to say, I think the most fun part of this question is whether you want to focus on exploiting weaknesses or protecting your team from being exploited. Michael's team is the perfect example. He picked five all-world defenders, but his collective shooting and playmaking is going to be a little shaky. He's clearly dead set on making sure he has no defensive weaknesses. Ben went the opposite way with Steph Curry, probably the superstar you'd consider choosing that could have some real size advantages in most of these scenarios. So he says, I think I have your answer that gives you the best possible blend. Anthony Davis, Kevin Durant, two LeBrons. That's your unimpeachable core four. For his fifth piece, he decided to have playoff P um, over Steph Curry uh, because he thinks that uh, he'd be better suited to chasing smaller guards than LeBron or Kevin Durant, while also being an elite spot-up shooter as a fifth option. He adds, mentally, there is a give and take. He has experience playing with ball-dominant players and has excelled in an off-ball role, but we have to hope that being the fifth option keeps him from bricking shots off the side of the backboard. He says, imagine a steady diet of Braun Braun or Braun AD pick and rolls with KD and PG spotting up in the corners. So would you actually trust Paul George in this situation? I think he might be the biggest X factor in this entire postseason, don't you think, Michael? Yeah, that one kind of threw me for a loop. You know, he would be the greatest fifth option of all time, but I do wonder, would he be, like, super happy about that? Um, I'm, 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 I'm less nervous about his production and his ability to knock down wide-open shots as I am, uh, like, his acceptance of that role, knowing that he's like far and away the worst player in that lineup. (laughs) So um, that could be an interesting adjustment for him. But otherwise, yeah, that's obviously a very good, another very good basketball team. 
Can't do it. I can't have Paul George in my top five here. Uh, sorry. I mean, we're, we're going to have to see him. Maybe he can prove it in this year's playoffs and convince me. But Thaddeus, I mean, I, I think my team beats your team, man. I'm feeling great about it. Uh, here's a question that comes in from Coach D. It's a really interesting one. He sent it in a while back, and I thought we should double back and answer it. He says, young NBA players learn early that veterans and superstars get foul calls. These young players have to earn the right to get calls. I think this is why some players complain. I have seen it with Anthony Edwards this year. He started the year without complaining. Then he would consistently not get foul calls from clear contact. Then he started complaining. I think players learn to complain because they know they are getting fouled, but they aren't getting the calls because they haven't earned them yet. I am a teacher, and I think this connects to education. We need to praise students when they do things the right way to build good habits. If a kid feels like they are being slighted or their efforts are not noticed, that is when behavior problems can begin. They start to think, why should I do it the right way? Also, here's some more theory about negative behaviors, like complaining. If you reward negative behaviors, they will continue. If a kid acts out because they are seeking attention, even asking them to stop their behavior can be rewarding. So, Michael, I think what he's essentially saying is we can look forward to an entire career of Anthony Edwards complaining now, just like Luca, because they feel like they have no other choice and because it works. What do you make of his psychological breakdown on how young players uh, interact with referees in the NBA? Uh, it's fascinating, I think, but also in the context of basketball, closed mouths don't get fed. So, like, that's why guys complain. You know, I'm speaking as someone who is generally in a better mood when the Boston Celtics win, and I'll watch someone like Peyton Pritchard, who just never says anything to the referee, regardless of what just happened. Like, he will not—he could get clobbered. And he's putting his head down, and he's jogging back on the other to the other end, like that's and, and it's frustrating. Like you have to stand up for yourself, honestly, um, in this situation. And uh, I understand what um, is being said with regards to education in the classroom, but like we can't compare <laughs> in just about every facet of life. Like we can't compare it to how NBA players behave when they're at their jobs because it's just like a different it's a different realm. It's a different world. Um, so my take is like complaining is annoying to watch. Absolutely. But it's just like, it's part of, it's a part of the game and you kind of like got to do it. Don't you think? I think so. I also think people have been complaining since as soon as there was officials, right? I mean, that's just part of all competitive sports. I don't think it's only limited to basketball. His point about how you have to positively reinforce uh, children, though, was interesting to me because I think we've heard that from more and more coaches here recently. I mean, you can even go back to like Brian Shaw. Remember when he was trying to wrap his uh, his game plans never, to the younger I, players? I will, I will never forget that. Thank you for bringing it up. Just an all-timer, right? Uh, but he was kind of onto something with uh, this current generation of players. I do think that they respond a lot more to positive reinforcement than negative. And I think part of it is as a response to social media, actually. I think players who have, um, you know, smart coaches and player development coaches and even, you know, uh, counselors or psychologists in their um, in their orbit tell a lot of young players, drown out the noise. Do not listen to the negativity. It will suck your energy. It will pull you down. Only focus on the positive, you know, believe in yourself, you know, and trying to kind of boost self-esteem and mood and those kinds of things. I think that's been a real trend here in part in response to just a lot of negativity that we see on social media all the time. And I think that, you know, players have sort of internalized that. And so 
if so let's say a coach comes at them in a in a negative way, maybe they're not as used or as receptive to that kind of coaching. And I, I think I've heard from assistants and other people around the league as well this idea of like the best way to get through to young stars is to sort of you know butter them up a little bit to to make them happy to make them comfortable. And of course, the referees don't have that luxury, Michael. They can't be like great drive. Here's free throws. You know, we're so proud of you. So I think that's just kind of a natural tension point within the sport. You know what I mean? Yeah, no, that's a really good point. And to kind of build on it, when we're talking about things that players are taught mentally, the number one thing that I hear is control what you can control in absolutely every area of your life. And that includes on the basketball court. And so that mentality, I think players do a really good job for the most part of following it. But (laughs) obviously they can't control when the whistle blows and when it doesn't but the the game is just so emotional and so visceral that I think they might have psyched themselves into believing that they can influence outcomes by screaming and throwing tantrums and so um so yeah no this is just like a fascinating conversation we could talk about it for like for hours well let's close this one up today I want to know what you were like on the court Michael when you're playing pickup are you asking for a lot of fouls you know relative to your opponents what's your standard for when you're you know trying to get uh, when you're trying to work your opponents if there is no referee in terms of when do you call fouls and when you played in refereed games how hard were you on the referees Wow. I was not expecting this question. Um, I Keeping you on your toes. Keeping it fresh, <laughs> Mr. Pina. I almost never spoke to referees when I played basketball um, in games that had actual real referees. And I think it was just – it was a partial combination of, sh- like, shyness and um, – not wanting to bark at an authority figure because I'm not like a, an adult <laughs> during this time of my life. I'm a kid. Um, and then also just like, I think whenever I would talk a lot on the court though, but it was always in a positive manner. It was never trash talk or anything like that. It was always just like um, applauding teammates when they made nice passes, set screens, made shots. Um, that was kind of my thing. So, I can't really relate to anyone who screams at refs and thinks that it'll actually um, impact an outcome of a possession or a game, but I understand why they do it. Yeah, the amount of talking that I did to opponents and referees was in direct relation to how good I was relative to the opponents. (laughs) (laughs) I'm not afraid to admit that. When I felt like I was the best player on the court... I would not shut up, Michael. And it was, I mean, it probably drove people crazy, but I think there's a real psychological benefit to be had from trash talking within games. Um, And so I would try to, I would try to do that. I mean, not in like personal negative ways, but certainly like I would be pushing the envelope if I could. Certainly I would be calling for fouls if I felt like I was going to the basket a lot and not getting the proper respect from officials. I'm sure that was really annoying to them. When I'm playing in games without referees, you know, back in the day, I always felt like it had to be a real hack. Like you had to be able to hear the contact on the other side of the court for that to be whistled a foul. And if anybody called anything ticky tack, that's when I would be like, come on. You know, that's when I would get pretty upset. I mean, did you ever have any of those situations where you're like, really like sort of like where it's getting into a chest to chest altercation. You're just sort of like, come on, dude, are you serious? You know, bring it in here again. I'm going to send you out harder. Like, did you ever have any of those kinds of deals or no? I honestly can't say that I did. And I was on the 
the the receiving end of some truly atrocious calls that have scarred me for life. But I I I, I didn't really um, feel the need to get too emotional in in the moment with anybody. Well, Michael V. Polite, I really appreciate that. Good for you. Um, I actually did was on the other side of it. I refereed for a year or two. Horrible job. Nothing but respect for the officials at all levels of all sports. Um, I don't think I was very good at it. Don't think the players liked me very much. And I'm glad those days are well, well behind me, Michael. All right, we've reached the end of another episode of Open Floor. Guys, thanks so much for the emails on the clone teams. We had a great time with that. Keep them coming. Openfloormail at gmail.com. Openfloormail at gmail.com. We will be back next week. You can find Michael on Instagram and Twitter at Michael Villas and Victor Pina. You can find me on Instagram at Ben.Golver, on Twitter at Ben.Golver. Don't forget, pre-order Bubble Ball, my book about the NBA bubble. We've been getting lots of questions about that, and hopefully we can address that sometime in the near future here. They can find that, Michael, by searching for Bubble Ball in my name on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, wherever else you get your books. Uh, guys, check us out on Apple Podcasts by searching for Open Floor. That's two words. When you find our page, scroll down. It will say rate and review tap five stars it's just that easy to help us spread the word all right michael until next week i will talk to you talk soon man i'm katia adler host of the global story over the last 25 years i've covered conflicts in the middle east political and economic crises in europe drug cartels in mexico now i'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it join me monday to friday to find out what's happening why and what it all means follow the global story from the bbc wherever you listen to podcasts Thank you for traveling with Amex Platinum. To your right, you'll see Oceanside Relaxation at a fine hotel and resort property. When booked through Amex Travel, you can enjoy complimentary breakfast for 2 and 4 p.m. late checkout. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. Open a limited-time 11-month certificate at Kemba Financial Credit Union. At 5.25% APY, it's more than triple the national average, plus it's a safe and secure way to grow your money. Visit your local branch or kemba.org for details. Offer expires May 31st, 2024. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. $500 minimum and $250,000 maximum deposit. Advantage status required. Comparison based on bank rate average. Federally insured by NCUA. Zumo Play is your destination for endless entertainment. With a diverse lineup of 350 plus live channels, movies, and full TV series, you'll easily find something to watch right away. And the best part? It's all free. Love music? Get lost in the 90s with iHeart 90s. Dance away with hip-hop beats and more on the iHeartRadio music channels. No logins, no signups, no accounts, no hassle. So what are you waiting for? Start streaming at play.xumo.com or download from the app and Google Play stores today. All you can stream with Zumo Play.